1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Subscribe to our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you find your podcasts. I'm truly delighted to welcome Seth Siegel to the show today to talk about his two recent books, Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World, and Troubled Water, What's Wrong with What We Drink. Seth M. Siegel is a writer, lawyer, activist, and entrepreneur. His essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and other leading publications. Seth Siegel, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Renee. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Writing a book about Israel's water solutions was prescient after this past summer of record-breaking heat, droughts, and wildfires all over the world, from Siberia to the northwest part of the U.S. to Europe and the Middle East. In fact, this month's theme for Earth Science Week is water today and for the future. What drew you to the subject way back in 2012?
1: Well, I started the research, as you say, in 2012, and what happened was I, was, um, I had been a, uh, an entrepreneur and I had had a business, and I had just uh, a few years earlier sold it, and the thought that I wanted to then to spend the rest of my life in service to the community in one form or another, I began studying uh, particularly the Middle East and began understanding the scope of what our scarcity and the way in which it was holding back that region and as I started to learn more, I, I, I happened to encounter a senior U.S. government intelligence official uh, who had been working on and on this very topic, and his concern was that policymakers were not adequately thinking about or aware of the threat to world security that a ever drier world was going to bring. And there were a number of reasons for this, uh, climate change, of course, rapid population growth, and so forth, but that for whatever the reasons were is that what we knew is the truth at that time, was that number one is water scarcity was coming in a big way, and number two is there wasn't enough awareness of it. And I thought that it was would be something of a public service for me to be able to um, tell that story. As it turned out, it's, in a, it's a story that was received well. It's now out in more than twenty the book is now out in more than twenty languages. Uh, I've had opportunities to speak in parliaments all over the world, and uh, whether it's governors in U.S. states or, or senior people in governments around the world, have reached out to me and I know have reached out also to government, Israeli government officials to try to help them to understand what they can do to avoid the worst of what is certainly now unquestionably a coming global water crisis.
0: Well, rainfall in Israel is famously uncertain. Even the Bible refers to the unpredictability of rain in the land of Israel. But now the water crisis is global, and talk about some of the humanitarian and international security issues raised by that prospect
1: well there's no question about the fact that the challenge for us is not going to be for necessarily for you and for me it may be that we will face higher food prices but that it's for people who it's for the billions and billions of people who basically live meal to meal and who if they find themselves in a situation where there's suddenly less water they'll either be a terrible famine and or the start of very significant refugee flows, which will be deeply destabilizing. We see that with the U.S.-Mexico border. We see that, obviously, with the Syrian Civil War refugees, only 2 million of them who came into Europe a few years ago. Um, We've seen that in other situations. And now we're not talking about a few hundred thousand or a few million. We're talking about tens of millions and maybe even more people who are likely to pick up from where they are and pick up to some other place and go to some other place. And that, that is going to cause very, very significant political instability, uh, s- security issues, and it's going to create humanitarian crises. To say nothing of, of the problem that famine uh, creates on you know, human suffering.
0: Well, too little water is the flip side of too much water. Uh, with climate change, we seem to be seeing certain places that are flooding in a way that they hadn't for many years and other places that are dry. What's the relationship between too much and too little water?
1: It's actually two sides of the exact same coin. Uh, What climate change really is about is water. It's either there's too much water either because sea levels are rising or because there's too much rainfall and we don't have the absorptive capacity in our cities and our sewage systems to absorb that much water, or it's that we have too little water. And this is going through cycles that we don't yet quite understand. There's there's something called the El Nino, La Nina water cycle, which relates for for a very long time to uh, rainfall coming from the heating and cooling of the Pacific Ocean. But this is clearly a, a different level altogether. What this means for sure, though, is that there's going to be changes to the way we will be doing our farming, the way we'll be growing our food. And this is going to, as I say, create all kinds of economic, political, social, and even military uh, national security implications.
0: People won't starve to death without a fight. And uh, and that's a very scary prospect, uh, that there'll be civil wars and tribal wars and, and perhaps international wars all over the globe. The way they're is and has been for quite a while now in Syria. Tell us about the role of water in the Syrian civil war.
1: Well, the role of of water is that it was was the spark, in a sense, that set off the conflict, but it goes back a few steps. What happened was a few years uh, before the Syrian civil war begins, the Assad regime makes a terrible, terrible decision to encourage their farmers to start growing cotton. That was done because the fact that um, politically, the farmers were of a conservative class that were supportive of the regime, and the regime wanted to do them a favor. Um, and it was also because at that very moment, cotton prices were very high on the on the world marketplace. Why it was a catastrophic decision is that cotton is, after alfalfa, the world's most consumptive crop of water. And... And uh, at the very moment that a drought is beginning, at groundwater resources are shrinking. Assad is encouraging farmers to be pumping groundwater to irrigate his co- their cotton crops. This, this exacerbates a terrible problem, uh, which is also that the uh, many, many sheep herders um, are finding themselves without adequate water for their uh, flocks. Um, and there's and there's becomes a mass die-off of, of the sheep there becomes a inability of the farmers to grow anything because all the groundwater becomes depleted and what happens is the people pick up and move in an internal uh, water refugee crisis of sorts to the cities around uh, the, to, uh, to the outskirts of the major cities, Damascus, Aleppo homes and so forth and they create shanty towns there. The social structure of these conservative families, breaks down, sons stopping respectable fathers, Juvenile delinquency begins, and some anti-regime graffiti gets painted on a wall one day, and the regime can't take any type of criticism, of course. They find and arrest a few little young boys who did the graffiti, and they beat one of them to death. This led to some protests, which led to some riots, which led to some disturbances, which, to quote the great writer Dante, Sparks sets off a great inferno, and this was exactly what happened. The Syrian Civil War begins with this. Obviously, there were other causes, but this was the this was the provocation.
0: Sometimes all it takes is one person with vision to locate a problem, understand the problem, and start to think of creative solutions. Israel was fortunate to have that kind of person, Sim Chablas. Tell us about him.
1: I'm so glad that you asked me. Um, one of my goals in writing Let There Be Water was that I really hoped that Simcha Blas would become a famous person. I had a, I had a pipe dream. I mean, was, the, the book is done <laughs> in many ways. I mentioned you know, far better than I ever imagined. It's a Cinderella story to some extent. But one of my dreams was, once I began learning the story, one of my dreams was that Simcha Blas would become a well-known figure in Israel, a national hero that every high school student would start studying as part of their curriculum, uh, the story of Simcha Blas. And that it would be an inspiration to people. Um, uh, it turns out it's not part of the it's, it's not part of the Hebrew. Uh, it's part of the part of the uh, high school curriculum. And even though the book is that in Hebrew under the name Hamavaka Kol Tipa, it never uh, it never transformed Simcha Blas the way he should have. Blas was born in Poland to an Orthodox family. Uh, he was at a young age seen as an absolute virtuoso, uh, a genius. And um, at that time, the leading technical college, the the Technion, like in Israel, the MIT or Caltech in the United States, um, was a school in in Warsaw, which actually rarely admitted Jews, and in any event had classes on Saturdays. And his Orthodox grandparents and parents uh, agreed, because he was such a genius, to allow him to start attending classes on Saturdays where he could express his genius. Uh, There was a small window of time when the university admitted Jews, and Blas was one of those very few Jews who was admitted, and he was a a brilliant student. But while he was at the school, he began to understand the the depth of anti-Semitism in his society, and he was exposed to Zionism, and by 1930, he decides that he doesn't want to live in Poland anymore, and he moves to the land of Israel. While there, he decides he's going to become an inventor. After a few years of that, he decides that the better thing for him to do is to start thinking about the number one problem that he sees in the land of Israel is water scarcity, and he begins to study. He's an he's a autodidact. He teaches this all by himself. He studies water science. He learns everything he needs to learn, and because perhaps he wasn't um, locked into any doctrines that he might have learned in a classroom, he ends up developing all kinds of theories about what to do in a dry place like Israel or the land of Israel, it wasn't Israel yet until 1948, what to do. And he develops the thinking about this. He comes to the attention of the Zionist leadership, and they put him ultimately in charge of developing all the water plans and policies of the proto-state and then finally of the state itself once 1948 comes along. He was a really a giant, giant figure. Um, and Israel would not today be what it is, I believe, if it hadn't been for Blass' early influences.
0: I remember hearing that in the uh, the early days of the state of Israel, the Zionist dream was described as making the desert bloom. So Israel owes that to this one man, Simcha Blas? Well,
1: I would, I would have to say yes, but not only. And in my, my research uh, for this and other works that I've done, for Let There Be Water and other works that I've done, what, I, what I've learned is that it is very rare to see uh, water as a top two, three, four issue that consumes the attention and interest of the national leadership. It tends to be something that gets pushed down in the bureaucracy, eh, kind of the you know, Ministry of Infrastructure kind of, of, of level. Uh, it might it might be somewhere on the agenda, but not anywhere near the, a top issue. In, for the early pre-state Zionists, starting in about the late 1920s and all the way through the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, what you had was the leadership of Israel were people who deeply thought about water issues. So David Ben-Gurion, if you read his diaries, which I did to prepare for writing the book, talks about water issues all the time. He talks about what he called desalting the sea, desalination, of course. He talks about desalting the sea. He talks about all kinds of things. Simcha Blas factors, Simcha Blas was a difficult guy, he factors into his his discussions and arguments with Blas and others. Levi Eshkol, who becomes the third prime minister of Israel, um, was the head of the National Water Utility. Uh, Pinchas Sapir, who becomes the legendary finance minister in the early days of the state, was completely focused on water issues uh, for for decades. So when you have that kind of heavy brain power and heavy thinking, of course course the early Zionist leadership was thinking about security. Of course they were thinking about immigration absorption. But what people don't realize is that the third largest issue they were thinking about was actually water. What I I learned is that Ben-Gurion a key driver for Ben-Gurion agreeing to reparations from Germany was because he needed the money and the, uh, and the material that Germany could produce for a national water system. Uh, and so water was very much in Ben-Gurion's mind. I want to add two more pieces though to that, which is not just the early days. If you look at, at the Yitzhak Rabin's Nobel Prize, Peace Prize speech, amazingly, you'll be amazed by this. I was amazed by this. I was only sorry I learned it after I'd written, uh, after the book had gone to print, and Let There Be Order gone to print. In his Nobel speech, he talks about how he, he regrets, his plan as a young man, he said, was not to become a politician or a, or a statesman or, or a soldier. It was to become a water engineer. Herzl speaks about water engineers in heroic terms, and most remarkable, not most remarkable, but equally remarkable, when, when Let There Be Water comes out in Hebrew, I get invited to sit a meeting with the Prime Minister at that time, Benjamin Netanyahu, and I assumed it was just going to be a two-second photo op, hello, goodbye. We sat for 45 minutes, and and, uh, the Prime Minister spoke with deep insight and knowledge about water policy to a degree that I I can tell you very few, if any, other heads of state or governors that I have met with in the intervening years have ever uh, demonstrated.
0: I'm inclined to say, sure, of course, Israel got a head start on thinking about water. Sixty percent of the country is desert. But then again, there are other countries that are largely desert that uh, didn't move forward with the kind of creativity your book describes.
1: You know, Renee, I, I, nothing aggravates me more, I think, than when I, you know, I've now spoken for hundreds and hundreds of audiences around the world uh, about water uh, generally, let there be water in particular. Uh, and other water books. And when I talk about Let There Be Water, someone will almost inevitably stand up at the end of my talk and say, well, of course Israel did this. They had no choice. Or of course Israel did this because necessity is the mother of invention. To which I will always answer, then why didn't Jordan do this? Why didn't Syria do this? Why hasn't Egypt done this? You know, Egypt has the Nile, which right now is under stress because of uh, this dam being built in, uh, in Ethiopia. But But until very recently, the Nile River represented 10 times, you know, 10 times, I'm sorry, uh, 50 times more water than Israel's water supplies on a per capita basis. Yet Egypt has terrible water problems. So how how did that come together? Even though Egypt has, say, 10 times as many, 11 times as many people as Israel, they have this massive amount of water, and yet even so they've never been able to figure out how to make proper use of their water. So, so, and that's just the, the, the regional neighbors. Extend that to you know, to Asia, to South America, to Africa, and you understand that Israel has done something really extraordinary. And this goes back, I think, to my answer a moment ago when I said that this was a top priority for the, um, for the leadership of the nation. When you put your best minds to work on a problem, when you put budget against a problem, you do tend to get better results and israel did this not so that initially so that it could be a model for the world not so that it could be a light onto the nations but they did it for their own sake and now of course it's turned into a multi multi billion dollar industry and a wonderful diplomatic calling card for the country
0: well sometimes what gets in the way of thinking about solutions are old assumptions that prevent recognizing changed conditions do you think that might be happening in the U.S., where, for example, the movie image of lush, verdant California, now with an oil spill, but still the movie's depict it that way, uh, makes it hard to think of it as in, an urgent water crisis?
1: Oh, for sure, you're right. Yes, people have a certain image of an entitlement of vast green lawns, and uh, if I can give a if I if I can give actually a, a more ridiculous example um, something that I'm involved with very much now if I can uh, make a, a small plug I'm very much involved now with an Israeli company named N Drip N hyphen Drip and it is a revolutionary approach to uh, irrigation it's I believe it will absolutely change the world but what is the world that it will change around the world today there are there are about uh, about 750, 800 million acres that are irrigated around the world, 85% of those, including in very dry places, are irrigated by something called flood irrigation. It's a technology, it's a method that goes back to ancient Egypt, ancient Mesopotamia, where you you flood a field to irrigate it, which maybe in ancient times made sense. Today, it makes absolutely no sense. You lose about 60 to 70% of the water to evaporation you undermine the yield of the crop, you destroy the topsoil. It's a terrible, terrible technology. Yet 85%, 600 million acres around the world today utilize this unimaginably wasteful methodology for irrigating. And that's because this is what farmers think they should be doing. This is what governments think they should be doing. They don't want to challenge their farmers. This is what pop culture allows us to do, whether it's for green lawns or, or flood irrigated fields. And I am with you in the sense that this crisis is going to be an invitation for us to change the way we think. And five or 10 years from now, I'm going to bet that the way we think about green lawns and dry places and the way we think about agriculture is going to be changing.
0: California and Israel signed a memo of agreement, memo of understanding, MOU, to deal with water issues. What... Flowed, pardon the pun, uh, (laughs) from from that agreement.
1: Well, it was an interesting. It was lots of things, and and I I might add that it was it was a a very interesting start of way for others to think about this. But what flowed from it was a whole bunch of cooperative agreements between Israeli academics uh, and California academics, between businesses in Israel and businesses in California. Uh, Some NGOs. Israel doesn't have a developed culture of NGOs, but some NGOs in Israel and some NGOs in in California as well. But this also provoked many other states to start looking at this model and to reach out to Israel. And I've, just just me, I mean, and not everyone gets in touch with me, I've already uh, helped prepare five different US governors for their trips to Israel to learn about uh, how they can learn from Israel's water story for for their states. Um, And this is something that is growing and growing. Arizona today has a deep and ever deeper relationship with Israel and Israeli technologies. Um, um, in the in the and um, what they are doing to address their water crises, this is an inevitability. Uh, Israel has such a leadership role in technology and governance and understanding how to use market forces, consumer education. I could keep going on and on with what Israel has done. That it is inevitable that everyone everywhere sooner or later will be taking lessons from Israel. Maybe not everybody doing everything that Israel has done, but there will be nobody who can't. Or won't be doing some of the things that Israel is doing
0: and do you think that uh, desalinization plays a major role or will play a major role
1: well if you mean in Israel's life yes uh, desalination is very important in Israel but if you mean around the world the answer will it depends uh, desalination is not an is not a cheap uh, technology um, it is a It's it's an ever more efficient technology, but it is not an inexpensive one. And therefore, less developed countries, I believe, will have to work their way up the economic development ladder before desalination is widespread. Um, That said, uh, said, it's important to understand that water problems come at us rather slowly. I mean, that's why I've been ringing the bell for a bunch of years now. Uh, But... But uh, but once we make a decision to address these water problems, desalination is a tool that should be utilized widely, but it need not be the only tool. If we think of water savings as a silver bullet, I'm sorry, if we think of desalination as a silver bullet to save the problem, then we are thinking about this completely in the wrong way. The real model of Israel, and I try to make this point repeatedly and let there be water, the real model of Israel is not that Israel had any one specific technology, whether it was wastewater reuse for agriculture, or desalination, or, or innovation in irrigation, or smart plant, uh, plant selection, or smart seeds, or anything like that. The answer about Israel is that Israel does all of these things. So yes, Israel leads the world by far in desalination. Yes, Israel leads the world by far in the reuse of wastewater, treated wastewater for agriculture. But they don't rely on one or two or three or five or ten things. They have a vast menu of choices that they make use of. Some of them redundant. Some of them expensive to, to implement. But this is the reason why Israelis get to live like they're living in London or New York, and they get to. And the economy can boom, and the tourism industry, hopefully, will turn someday soon. The tourism industry can be a, a great success because of the fact that Israel has no limitations on water because they have figured out how to be basically independent of weather.
0: Well, I asked about desalination because it's a lot easier to turn to new technology than it is to change cultural styles and individual behavior. What kind of changes in behavior and culture do cities and countries experiencing drought need to try to implement?
1: By the way, I happen to agree with you. And one of the points of advocacy that I make when I speak about this issue to government officials, policymakers, uh, which I suppose I'm doing in a sense by speaking to your audience here, is the fact that we need to think about um, we need to think about the, the technology as a tool of of easing people into a new way of thinking about water. And that by utilizing technology, you don't have to ask people to significantly change their behaviors immediately, because that's very disruptive and people don't like doing that. Uh, and that's that's one very great value. But to keep in mind also that there's a lot, a lot, a lot of different technologies, by the way, many of them coming out of Israel. There's a lot, a lot of technologies that are um, that are very smart about how to make better use of water. To see the specifics of your question is what is it that states and cities are doing is, well, they're doing everything from the reducing supply, you know, cutting the amount of water available for agriculture, which is very disruptive. And... and will lead to higher food prices um, and will also disrupt agricultural communities. They're doing everything from cutting water supplies to um, trying to fix leaks. People don't understand the extent to which the pipes under the ground are leaky. Um, Again, Israel is a world leader. It's the second lowest leak level in the world. Only about 9% of the water gets lost to leaks. But imagine this. In some countries in South America and in Asia, the leak level is such that, that S- communities lose 60 to 70 percent of their water to leaky mm. pipes um, in and in, 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 even in Europe even in Western Europe there are places where you lose 40 50 percent in the United States losing although on average it's not this high in the suburbs of Chicago 45 percent leak levels are common or at least I should say not uncommon so so this is the problem uh, a problem that we have so fixing leaks um, uh, which will which be aided uh, by infrastructure spending, uh, which, is, which helps employment, uh, is, is another great technique. And then finally, uh, education on the level of con- a consumer education, school education, signage, reminding people that fixing leaks actually does make a difference and that they should also be mindful about how they consume water. That said, Renee, the issue is not some teenage kid taking a 25 minute shower. The issue is always going to be agriculture because agriculture consumes in most of the world about 70% of the water of the society. In some countries like Egypt or Ethiopia or Iran, that's actually 90 to 95% of the water used is used for, um, for agriculture. And therefore, to really fix the problem, we have to fix agriculture while we fix the other things too.
0: Your other book about water, Troubled Water, What's Wrong with What We Drink, looks at water from the aspect of keeping it clean and pure and safe. Uh, You're very critical of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S. What do you think to have been and continues to be their fundamental failure in protecting the nation's water supply?
1: The fundamental failure, um, I, and you're right. I, I am I am quite critical of the EPA, and at the same time, I want to hasten to add that there are many, really many, many, many really wonderful, very talented, very smart, very hardworking people uh, at the EPA now, and in many years past. Uh, EPA was founded in 1970, and for many years, um, uh, for many years now, they've done many very good things too. The problem with the EPA is that it it lost its way beginning around the 1980s. The EPA, when it was founded, was a proactive agency that was looking out for the health of the environment and the health of the public. And sometime around the 1980s, Congress gets in the way of this mission by changing funding and the bureaucracy at the EPA begins thinking of itself in a different way. So, So take this as just an example, if I may. There are more than one hundred thousand chemicals, some pharmaceuticals, some industrial chemicals, some solvents, and so forth, that are in commerce in the United States right now. More than one hundred thousand; it's about one hundred twenty thousand altogether. Um, so you might think that the EPA is regulating, for purpose of drinking water, you know, twenty five thousand of them, or thirty thousand of them, or fifty thousand of them. But in reality, the number is shockingly low. It's fewer than hundred. It's actually about ninety. Are regulated. And as crazy as it is that such a tiny number of them, and, and by the way, and thousands of chemicals get into our water supply, um, as shocking as that low number is, even more shocking is the fact that the last time any any contaminant, any chemical was regulated by the EPA was more than 20 years ago. So, So between Democratic presidencies, Democratic EPAs, Democratic Congresses, Republican Congresses, Republican EPAs, Republican White Houses, it doesn't make a difference. Democrats are rhetorically better on this issue, but when the push comes to shove and you have to do something, both Democrats and Republicans tend to default to the idea of more study, more analysis, more thinking, but less action. And as a result, this variety of contaminants that are in our water and sometimes very widely in our water, and not just in the United States, that we know for almost certain are causing a variety of health crises.
0: Listeners who remember the tragedy and scandal of Flint, Michigan's water supply some years ago uh, will be appalled to learn that it's not a unique situation. Remind us about Flint, Michigan and how it is today.
1: Well, Flint, Michigan came into public consciousness uh, because um, a, a woman in town started noticing that her children were having rashes and had a variety of different health issues and she wanted to have the water tested. She discovered that, um, that the, there was a very high lead level in her water. Um, she very uh, wisely reached out to some people who led her to a very courageous, but still anonymous, I know who he is, I interviewed him for hours and hours, a still anonymous EPA official who, um, who assisted her in putting together her complaint this leads, one thing leads to another. It leads to a, a great awareness of the fact that the water of Flint, Flint, Michigan is contaminated with lead, which has all kinds of implications for IQ, for attention deficit, for future criminality, for likelihood of finishing high school, and all kinds of other things. It fries the brain, it fries the synapse, uh, synapse of, of young uh, people uh, to say nothing of fetuses and newborns. And to the extent that people were adding tap water to the formula, powdered formula that they were feeding their kids, they were just frying their kids, they were ruining their futures. And, and there's no remediation once that happens. It, you've ruined their lives. And what I think is was, from a water point of view, very unfortunate about Flint, uh, and I know this is an outlier comment, which people don't usually say, is that Flint is a uh, what's called a majority minority city which means about the majority of the 95,000 people who live there are are, are non-white and um, and what happened was we're in the midst of a presidential race and Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders both adopted Flint but not as a story about broken American infrastructure, not as a story about water not as a story about returning America to its greatness of being a great civilization building for the future instead, because it was a majority-minority city, they both decided to turn this into a metaphor for race relations in the United States. By the way, an important issue, something I think we need to address. But what got, as a, a, but but as a result of that, a casualty of that was that the water conversation per se evaporated, so to speak, uh, around us. Now, why is this important? Because while Flint has, you know, many water lines into people's homes that are made of lead, and therefore they're drinking leaded water. It is not even a rounding error as to the scope of what's happening in America. Flint has 10, 15,000 water lines that are of lead. Around the United States, the best guesstimates are that somewhere between 7.5 and 10.5 million million homes. So multiply that by two people, three people, five people, seven people in the house. But somewhere between 7.5 and 10.5 million homes are fed by leaded. Uh, it's called leaded water pipes, leaded service lines, what the technical term is. And so this is something that we have known for quite a while is a problem, and we have simply swept it under the rug. We have not taken the attitude of we're going to fix this on a national level. And some communities have decided to fix it, uh, um, uh, both before Flint and after Flint. But in the main, we have ignored it as an issue. And this is just a metaphor for how how ineffective our leadership have been in addressing the health Needs of us in terms of our drinking water,
0: f- f- and by the, the people way, people of Flint are are still drinking bottled water and less, washing and less in less so,
1: Less and less so. There was a very large settlement uh, w- between the federal government and uh, and some state funds as well, uh, so that um, so that uh, systematically all the lead service lines have been removed or are being removed from the town, so that once once your lead service line, which, in other words, it's a, there's a there's a water main that goes down the center of your street, and then there's a branch that comes off, goes into your home. The water main is not made of lead. The branch is made of lead, or was, until the 1980s. And um, and so that branch that is going into people's homes is where the lead is. And in Flint, those leaded those leaded lines are being removed and replaced, and and now um, and, and now the uh, now fewer and fewer of them are drinking bottled water. Uh, by the way, if I can just highlight how ineffective I believe the uh, the system is, in many cases, those those branched uh, service lines are being replaced by plastic water pipes. And I have made the argument strongly, in, also in uh, Troubled Water, that while there may be a very significant role for plastic pipes for sewage, and maybe a significant role for other conveyances of, of uh, water, that our drinking water should not... Be, uh, should not be utilizing plastic pipes until we have done very deep testing. So, in the same way that for call it a hundred years or so, we were putting lead pipes into our homes, we are now putting plastic pipes into our homes at an alarming level. And I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a pro business guy. I'm not some crazy you know I hate business type of personality. Uh, but <coughs> sorry, but what is absolutely true is that we are inadequately tested for the what could be what could be the crisis of 50 years from now from plastic pipes.
0: All right, we don't know what leaches out of plastic pipes. Right. Um, <coughs> finally Seth, your books make a very strong case for paying attention to our water, essential and easily taken for granted. If listeners want to get involved in their own communities, what do you think they should do?
1: Well, a couple of things. First of all, is I offer myself as a resource for everybody. Uh, I invite everybody, and I've had this interaction with truly thousands of people. Uh, I, I and I never charge. There's no charge for this. Uh, I, I regard myself as doing this as a public service. Uh, please visit my website uh, www. s e t h m like mary siegel s i e g e l dot com. Perhaps your show notes will have that as well. Um, In addition, feel free to read either of these books. uh, Once again, none of this is commercial because all the royalties go to charity. Um, And perhaps, (coughs) I apologize, Um, and uh, and perhaps what you can do is you can start educating your local officials. Most of them are woefully uh, ignorant of the issues. Um, And and nothing will change significantly until there is a citizen awareness and a citizen uprising making demands for changes here.
0: Well, thank you for raising our consciousness about water and about how one country, Israel, managed to make it a priority with a range of common sense, innovative, and not just technological ways. Happily, Israel is also very willing to share its solutions with other countries. Where is your own work on the subject taking you next?
1: Well, I mentioned sort of in passing this company and drip, um, and um, I, I'm very happy to say that this revolutionary technology, which transforms flood irrigated fields uh, into, into gravity driven, uh, carbon free um, drip irrigated fields, which increase yields by 25, 40, 50 percent, cut water consumption by as much as 70 percent, reduce carbon emissions by 60 percent. Um, th- reduce the amount of fertilizer needed by about a third. Uh, this, is, this is something that has been uh, preoccupying me and occupying me, and I'm doing all I can to alert public officials, uh, a- major NGOs, uh, even, even important corporations that uh, want to improve the uh, sustainability of their supply chains. I've been talking about this. I hope also to write a book about this at some point, but, uh, but for now, right now, My activism has taken me in the idea that I can do more getting away from my keyboard and and being out there talking about this than any other thing that I could do.
0: Well, good luck with that new project. It sounds like one of the range of responses to water issues that we really need. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Seth.
1: Thank you, Renee, for having me.
0: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff.